Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. Series on on First Peter, just kind of walking through this letter. Um, really sort of addressing the theme. We feel like it's a letter that has something to say with how, how we live our confession of Jesus um, uh, in, in our culture. It was a question Peter was dealing with, and we've seen some of the context of that conversation uh, over the last few weeks. And today, we, we really, again, it's kind of the main thrust. Uh, it's where we're headed here, and it'll be the theme this morning as well. Uh, I, I was having a conversation with uh, one of the members of our community here a, a little while ago, and uh, the, the subject of the Lord of the Rings came up. And uh, sorry, it's not the Chiefs, but uh, the Lord of the Rings came up. It's not tennis, though, so some of you are like, well, well, you know, we're, we're this positive movement. We've you know, talked about tennis for a few weeks, but uh, nothing against tennis. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but we got to talk about Lord of the Rings. And uh, there's a new podcast, a newish podcast by a, a couple of the guys who were actors in the movies, Mary and Pip, the, the Hobbits, uh, from the Lord of the Rings. And most of the podcast is, is a little... I don't know, ridiculous. It's just, you know, nonsense, occasionally irreverent. Uh, but it is fun to listen to them kind of talk about their experience of uh, their experience with the works themselves, uh, the stories, the books, but also obviously their experience of filming. And uh, a, part of, a part of this sort of show, these conversations they have together is they bring in guests. And one of their guests was Sean Astin, who played uh, Samwise Gamgee, deep dive, maybe not, you know, he's, he's sort of the right-hand man of Frodo, but more than that, but this sort of loyal companion of Frodo and the main character in, in the story. Sean Astin, you guys know Rudy, right, Rudy, right, yeah, yeah, Goonies, right, for some of you, Goonies, right, he, um, but it was, a, it was a really fun sort of conversation, but one of the questions they asked him was, um, like, when, that, you know, they're like, when did you realize, so these guys, they were a friend group, they had all connected, and they're like, when did you realize uh, that, uh, you know, you knew, Lord of the, you knew this was going to be big, but when did you realize it was going to be, like, that big? You know, what, what was that moment like for you? And Sean's answer, uh, Sean, uh, I always joke my dad for referring to celebrities by just their first name, and he's not here to defend himself, but uh, here I go and have done the same thing. Sean uh, said, his answer was interesting, that it kind of happened in stages. And he said the first stage was when the, the screenplay for the three, you know, shows was like delivered to him. And he's like, normally when I got one of those and they dropped it on the table, it kind of made like a flap sound. And this was like thud, right? Just this, and knew like, oh, this, this is kind of a big deal. And they said, I kind of picked it up to read it. And the title was something like Jamboree. And there was like all the secrecies, like I realized there was all this intentional secrecy around the content. He's like, so that if I was out in public or at a coffee shop and reading through that it wouldn't be, you know, readily apparent, you know, what this work was going to be. But the, the, the third response that I, I think has some traction for what Tyler read for us from Peter this morning was he said, I got to kind of opening and reading through the script. And, you know, he's chatting to his, you know, actor buddies and they're like, oh, yeah, you know how like you're flipping through and, and I'm, I'm trying to get into the character and I'm reading the script and trying to identify with my character, get lost in the story. But every page sort of watermarked across the page was my name, Sean Astin, Sean Astin, Sean Astin. And he's like, there's nothing more frustrating than that moment when you're trying to lose yourself in the story and in the character. And every page just reminds you how important you are, right? And I'm like, you know, sometimes we got our problems, right? That's yours. Uh, but I, 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 I thought it was an interesting sort of picture I think uh, for attention that I I, want to suggest that we probably all feel or carry in life. We may not feel important, but I do think we know the feeling of of wanting to feel important. 
of needing to, of, of needing to sort of be uh, reminded that we're significant, that, uh, that, that this is how and why uh, we matter, that we are all in some sense, I would suggest to you, sort of trying to uh, kind of make sure that our name gets watermarked right across the pages of, of, of life. Uh, and, and, and again, I think that's true regardless of like, maybe we feel that way, maybe we don't, but I, I, I do want to suggest that we, it's a pull that we uh, feel. And I think Peter, I think Peter in the, in the letter that we read, the bit of the letter we read this morning speaks to that uh, feeling. So he picks up threads that he started last week. Again, last week he was like uh, kind of trying to write to a group of people who would have been, because of their belief in Jesus, their confession that, man, uh, Jesus, the Messiah who's been crucified, but yet God has chosen and raised him. Like we're following him. That has put them at odds with the culture around them. It's created tension in their life. And he gives them examples. Well, how do you step back into those places of tension, like in your marriage or in economics or political life? He kind of addresses those specific roles. But this week, he sort of makes a slight shift and and speaks more broadly to the community. Well, what does it look like for us as a community to, to live this confession together and then as a community to live it sort of in the context of a wider culture? And, and I think he offers us a couple of... Um, Principles. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go with we'll go with principles. You guys like I don't really care what words you choose, Matt. Just maybe advance the point. So that's what we'll do. Um, uh, but just a couple of observations that I think are kind of uh, general here uh, from our reading that speak to how we relate to each other, and then as we relate to each other, how we relate to the world. And the first one, the first observation I want to give to you is this: is that I think Peter says that because of Jesus, we are freed. Uh, we see it in this passage, we're freed from having to defend our own uh, status, all right? And, and uh, the language here maybe of like vindictiveness, of sort of angrily engaging, which we made this observation last week, but there is a sense in which for Peter, as he writes to these people that are engaging with the places in their lives where their confession in Jesus may have led to tension and conflict, that they're set free from, from having to defend uh, their own status, maybe even sort of vindictively. We, we, we heard it in verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That You don't have to respond in kind. We uh, have somehow been set free from the impulse within us to have to defend our status and significance. This was a theme that was, I mean, Jesus himself introduced last week, right, as Peter was writing about Jesus and said uh, this beautiful picture that we read as we took communion, that, that he's the shepherd of our souls and that though reviled, he didn't respond, right, that uh, he didn't retaliate. Uh, uh, Peter gives us this beautiful portrait of Jesus that, that this command now is clearly rooted in that uh, example, that there is this, we, we hear it sort of as a command, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but I think at its root, it's this invitation that we've been set free from having to uh, assert or defend our own status. Uh, I was chatting actually with one of you uh, guys last week, and I'm thankful for the observation. Chris made the observation last week that uh, just kind of thinking about Peter in the letter uh, and uh, that, you know, thinking about how the Peter we meet in the Gospels how different he sounds uh, here, the change that Jesus has wrought in his life, that this is Peter, as Tyler has read for us this morning, telling folks, you don't have to respond in kind when your decision to follow Jesus has led to tension and conflict in your life. You're set free from having to defend that your status. But this is the same Peter who, uh, we know the story, Jesus was like, I'm headed to the cross, and Peter's like, no way, this will never happen. Uh, it's crucifixion, death, like this is nonsense, and Jesus rebukes him. The same Peter who in the garden, uh, leading up to the cross, drew a sword, 
ready to defend the movement Jesus had begun and inflict whatever damage he could on the people around him. In that moment, uh, Jesus rebuking him, this is, not, uh, this is not the direction things are going to go. That, that Peter, as a result now of the work of Jesus in his life, is writing to folks who find themselves perhaps in their own spaces of conflict and tension, telling them they have been set free from having to defend. It's the same Peter. You know, this isn't specifically Peter, but Peter of the Peter, James, and John. Uh, and you'd imagine he had a front row seat to James and John themselves who, uh, walking with Jesus, they come upon a Samaritan village that is less receptive to them and, and they pass through and they turn to Jesus and ask him, can we, can we call down fire, <laughs> right? Like, like, let's just, let's, uh, you know, because of the reception we got and Jesus, again, re- rebuking them. No, you, you are set free from having to defend uh, status and significance here. Uh, I think we live in a culture, uh, we, I, I don't know that this is unique to us, but I mean, so much of the ways in which we engage with the world uh, nudge us toward asserting uh, our own status. There are all kinds of spaces. Uh, digital is one of them. Uh, but where, we, where, we, where we, we just need to assert uh, significance of, of, of some kind. And Peter here, I think, nudges us in a different direction, that uh, somehow, because of what God has done in Jesus, we're free from retaliation. We're free from, uh, again, that kind of vindictive anger that has to uh, assert myself at the expense of the person across from me. It's loosely related, but I've been reading through Dune uh, and uh, with, with some of you. Uh, if I didn't lose you at Lord of the Rings, I probably lost you just here, so... But uh, I'm in <laughs> the book I'm in. Uh, just a phrase has stuck with me, and you know, like science fiction, kind of talking about machines and humans and how all these things were laid as sort of one theme. But but the statement, like the, the the machines, the devices themselves, the author says, the character condition the user to employ each other, the way we the way we employ the machines. We start to you know we kind of use these machines, kind of push ourselves forward or whatever it is we want to advance. But we start to treat people in the same way. And I was just reading. I don't know that I understand much of what I've read in Dune. Uh, but but it, it, what struck me as I heard that was all the, all the ways in which we sort of use, uh, I thought about like technology to kind of assert ourselves and, and uh, kind of push our, our significance forward. And, and we, start to, we, we just treat uh, the people on the other side of those things in the same way. They become a means or a way in which we can kind of defend or assert our status. All of that to say, perhaps not so clearly, I think Peter sort of says that Jesus makes a difference here, that we are set free. We're set free from having to defend uh, our significance, all right? So that's the first observation. We got it? Observation number one. My second observation, uh, and then chili, right? Chili, you can taste it, right? Um, My second observation, uh, I might sneak three or four more in just for the sake of it, but uh, is is that not only are we we set free, we're free from having to defend ourselves. uh, In our reading this morning, Peter makes the observation, we're free to bless Others. So not only are we kind of set free from having to defend ourselves, we're kind of freed up to, to sort of undercut all the sort of pictures of status that culture wants to use, and, and we're free to just generously and extravagantly bless the people uh, around us. We, we hear it in the language in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, all these qualities that, that bring others to the center and, and, and move my own sort of status to the periphery, right? All, all of these virtues, if you will, that, that esteem others uh, greater than uh, myself. Again, virtues that are at odds with how so much of culture uh, wants to operate. 
I, I uh, was reminded this week of a, of a book written a few years back uh, by a guy named David Brooks, and, and he uh, writes about faith and culture and uh, kind of operates in sort of secular space, and, and he's writing, this book's called The Road to Character. And uh, he kind of what sets him off on this project is he said he got to thinking about uh, sort of the, the way in which kind of virtues work in our culture. And he sort of divided them into two groups, if you will, uh, like, a, you know, this side and a, a that side, two groups. Uh, the, the first he called resume virtues. Like the, 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 there are these resume virtues that uh, culture, he says, our world is obsessed with them. But then he said on the other side are what he called eulogy virtues. What do you think those are? Virtues that would be brought up where? Yeah, at a funeral, right? And he says there's kind of these like two sort of spheres, these things that we want to like celebrate, that there's something in us that acknowledges their value. But, but he says as a culture, generally, we are obsessed with, the, with these sort of resume virtues. These are the things that contribute to external success. These are the things that are rewarded, the things we pursue. Eulogy virtues, as you have said, Right? Or, or the, the things we hear at a funeral, right? The things that get talked about at that moment, they're a little bit deeper. They speak to the core of what people are. Uh, the, the things like kindness and bravery and honesty and faithfulness. Uh, he mentions, which I think is interesting, even the, the relationships we have with others. So that at this moment of finitude, uh, what comes up is our treatment of other people, uh, eulogy virtues, he says. And he sort of you know, breaks them down. I don't know that everything is quite so simple, but he breaks them down and, and, and uh, suggests, you know, like the resume virtues are the kind of things that you cultivate and create. You build. He said, he, this is his language. They follow the logic of economics. That input leads to output. Effort leads to reward. Practice makes perfect. Pursue sort of self-interest. You maximize your productivity and, 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 and you know, you, you kind of work to impress and these things get recognized and you advance vocationally or otherwise. But he said eulogy virtues, he suggests, operate by a different logic. That, that, that uh, he, he calls it a, a moral kind of logic. You know, you can you have that conversation with them. But he says these are, these are things that uh, seem counterintuitive like you give to receive. And they, I mean, he just goes straight to Matthew's gospel. Again, this is not a uh, sort of religious publication and a Christian in that sense, but he goes straight to like the Sermon on the Mount. You give to receive. You, you surrender something. Uh, uh, you surrender to, to, kind of, to kind of receive. You, you uh, conquer the desire to kind of get the thing that maybe you thought you were aiming at, this, this sort of inverted uh, aspect to eulogy virtues. I don't know what you think about all that, maybe not much, but my sort of general observation, this is again just my experience and observing in my own life and the lives of those closest to me, is that even in the moments when eulogy virtues are present and expressed, uh, maybe in the workplace, even in moments where those kinds of virtues are, are evident, maybe even acknowledged or appreciated by coworkers, that when that happens, Generally, it happens on the side, on the quiet. Uh, I was going to say on the sly, but that sounds sort of devious. That's not what I mean. Uh, you know, maybe it's welcomed. It's, it's, it's identified as something like, oh, there's a quality here that I am drawn to or that makes a difference or that changes sort of the tone or the environment. Like there's an acknowledgement that there's something good here, but that, that seems to generally happen on the side. It is still not in the space that makes for kind of public recognition an advancement. Because we are obsessed with sort of the kind of virtues that assert our status. 
I think Brooks's observation is interesting. He'll go on, he'll look at examples from recent history and otherwise of, of people who paid attention to kind of the eulogy virtues and he holds them as, as examples, and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. He'll even get explicit with the language of sin, which is interesting that there's this acknowledgement that, uh, of sin there. But I, I, I think I just would suggest to you, it's interesting to me that Peter, of all the things he could have said here and how we relate to each other, and then as we relate to each other, how we relate to the world, that he lands, like his virtues are much closer. They trend toward the, the sort of eulogy end of things, which maybe is not surprising for a faith community built on the example of a Messiah who would lay down his life on, on a cross for the sins of the world who would relinquish his status, would relinquish uh, any right he had to sort of uh, significance and recognition, would relinquish all that on behalf of others for the sins of the world. And here Peter pushes to the front again. We're free from having to defend ourselves. And, and then even flowing from that, we're then free to, to bless others. Uh, one, one New Testament uh, uh, writer kind of reflecting on this passage, you know, again, this is not a stretch, but he makes the observation that all of these qualities that we find listed here, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, not repaying, evil in kind, all these kinds of things. He said, I mean, they're, they're, like, they're like the fingers of a glove, and the center of that glove is the compassion of Jesus Christ. It's the grace that we find. Uh, in him, all of them are elements or aspects of that center. They all flow out of that center of the grace and love and compassion we find in Jesus. I heard an interview uh, this week, uh, uh, an old one uh, with Bono. Uh, uh, I guess that's just his first and last name, so I can't uh, assume any level of familiarity there that I don't really have. Uh, you know Bono. Um, it was, a, it was a, this from about a decade or more ago. Uh, uh, and, and then, of course, the interview, the interviewer asked him, it's kind of a year in review, it was around, uh, I think it was 20, uh, it was around 9-11, but had asked him the question, um, you know, what's the most memorable personal encounter you had this year? And uh, his answer was that uh, it, it was the time he spent, his dad was dying, and he spent uh, nights in the hospital with him. Said I slept there next to him, uh, just spent some time with him. We want to describe his dad, his relationship with his dad. And, uh, but but in, in the course of that conversation, Bono was like, I, I you know, I found myself in that moment really kind of focusing on. I wanted to preserve dignity. Like dignity was like the virtue that I, I kind of thought was the most important. So uh, for my dad, he was a hard man. Kind of talked about these kind of fun interactions he had had. But, but he's like, kind of focused on sort of this, this esteeming sort of to the level of righteousness. This like. Uh, protecting his dignity. But then, then he said, which I thought was interesting, he's like, I got to thinking about it. I'm like, there is not much dignified uh, about birth and death. That uh, these sort of significant moments in life are, are there's just not a lot of dignity ar around them in general. And he's like, maybe I'm kind of missing the, the thing. And then he said, maybe, maybe the thing we should be aiming at is humility. Which I thought was an interesting thing. And then he said, you know, this kind of like, it's like the eye of the needle that we all have to pass through. And interestingly, uh, Peter here, sort of a, a sort of, Summary of all the virtues he's listed is this call to, to, to live with a humble mind. Uh, and some have defined humility as a, a deference, as, as, as a position in which you are not able to defend your status. And here Peter says, a mark of our life together, uh, humility. Uh, again, as we hear these, these two things, right? So you're free from having to kind of defend and free to, to bless uh, are these just virtues you work up, right? Virtues I work up. Well, I think as we've observed again and again 
uh, in scripture that uh, as we've read Peter, I don't think that's any more the case this morning than it is and has been week after week that all of these qualities are both both of these qualities, to be more accurate, are rooted in the work of God already on your behalf and mine. I think we see it. So Paul, uh, sorry, Peter quotes at length from Psalm chapter 34. Uh, this quote here, he's, you know, he's, he's, he said, live like this, be like this. And then he says from, from Psalm 34, it's a lengthy quote. It's one he's already referenced in his letter. Uh, but here he quotes at length, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And then this, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He'll go on to say in that psalm, again, which shapes, I think, so much of what we find in, in Peter's letter, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. And it's not an acknowledgement that everything will go well because the very next verse will say many are the afflictions of the righteous. There is this acknowledgement that there's this conflict of tension and brokenness in life. And yet he says that somehow our experience uh, in, uh, of what Jesus has done for us changes the way we react and engage with these places in our lives. And in this case, I might suggest to you to hear him say, to say with Peter, the face of the Lord, right? That he, the eyes of the Lord are over the earth. The face of the Lord that is this acknowledgement that it's because of the justice of God that he holds these things. That as I trust more and more in God's character and justice in this case, I am freed from having to defend and retaliate the people around me. And then he'll go on uh, in verse 9. And tells, tells them that they've been uh, they are heirs for they've, they've been set free. Uh, he, he says here, uh, verse nine: Don't repay evil for evil. On the contrary, bless for to this you have been called. This acknowledgement that the prior work is God's work in their life. That, that, that as we trust God's just justice, that He He is looking over the earth. That it's His. These are His things to sort out. The more we trust that, it doesn't make us um, callous and uncaring. Instead, it it frees us from the need to assert our own status and that as we trust his goodness we're now free to having received it to to bless others around us and Peter here in this passage rooting uh, how we relate to one another and to others in the work that God has already done which again all of that is to say we are free because the status we work to defend often at the expense of others has been conferred on us by someone else It's not something you and I have to generate. It's not something we have to cultivate and create and establish and defend and mark out. It has been conferred, Peter says, by the God who has laid his life down in Jesus on our behalf. Which brings me back to the Hobbins. You were wondering. You were wondering, right? (laughs) No, maybe you weren't. I was really hoping he'd bring up the Hobbins again. Uh, Well, I have. Um... Uh, just to go back to sort of Sean Astin's conversation around uh, the watermarked name on his script. I mean, it's interesting what Peter says. We could read Peter and be like, okay, I don't need to put my name there. Maybe I need to put some like other people's names there. And that might do some good for a while, but that is not what Peter says here. That it's not like your name or, or some other person's name that you want to show generosity to kind of is the center of, of life. None of those things, uh, Peter would suggest that the name that sort of makes all the difference over the pages of your life is the name of Jesus Christ. That it's his work and his example that, that begins to reshape how we relate to each other. That we don't have to use the same tactics as culture or the world to defend status. 
God in his grace has conferred that on you and me and Jesus already. There was one other moment uh, in that interview that is only loosely related to what we've talked about already this morning, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Sean Asson is talking about the filming at remote locations, and they're up in the mountains. Uh, if you're familiar with some of the scenes, you know, there's like mountain passes and snow. And they were talking about how dangerous it was that they had like, they had uh, a space that they had created with like uh, meals ready to eat and little stoves and stuff in case they got trapped up there because the weather could change so suddenly. Uh, they had sort of evacuation plans, which is like, man, that's a lot of work for a movie, but you know, I, I don't know. But he, he talks about how one particular day it had taken them hours to get up there and they got to this remote location and they had barely even started and they immediately had to, they were evacuating them. And he said help, they were helicoptering in to, to lift them off the mountain. And uh, Sean Essen was a little older than the other guys in his group. Uh, he had kids, and they talked about uh, sort of that difference in his life over the course of filming, that he brought a certain amount of anxiety uh, to, uh, which if you've got kids, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that anxiety. <laughs> right, like, he just, just kind of a worrisome sort of like, is everything, you know, just kind of eyes on making sure everything was where it needed to be and in place. So you can imagine, and he's retelling the story for some slight comedic effect, that uh, this moment of evacuation, he's just supremely stressed out. And he's like, they're, they're, they're flying the helicopter and they couldn't even land. Uh, and they're coming in. And he's like, and I'm like, you know, anxious. I'm kind of looking around. Or is everybody taking care of it? He's like, these other, the other hobbits, the guys hosting the show, you guys are just like fooling around. You're laughing. You guys are playing, throwing rocks and having a good time. And I'm like, what is the matter with you? Right, this feeling. And he talked about how uh, the helicopter would come in and, and, and he said it would, and again, who knows, but it would land. He said there was one skid on the rock. And he's like, the other skid was just hanging out there over nothing. And they're trying to board us on this helicopter. And you guys are just laughing and playing games. And uh, they're laughing at him. And, and they're going to talk about how, he, you know, really he needs to kind of, like, uh, his fear and anxiety of kind of controlling that situation. I told you it was a loose association. And it is. Uh, but here it is. I, I wonder for some of us, uh, I don't know where you are, but your efforts to assert your own status have left you with that similarly sort of uh, out of control feeling. You, you think maybe it's just, uh, you just kind of barely hanging on. There is this veneer of togetherness in your life. Uh, but beneath the surface, you're like, I got one skid on a rock and the other leg is just out there over nothing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping nobody notices. Or maybe like Sean Astin, you're just frantic trying to control the places of your life. Assert your significance. Feel it, maybe a crave in your heart and life, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, to me, it's not your name over the paper that matters, that as you rest in the character of God, his justice and his goodness, he opens a way for you to be free, free from all that striving as we sang this morning, free uh, in rest and joy and peace, free from having to assert and defend your significance and status, and then free to love and bless and generously care for the people around you. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.